I'm Ollie Ollerton, and this is Win The Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win The Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go! Hey winners, welcome back to Win The Day. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. The quote for this episode comes from Winston Churchill and says, if you're going through hell, keep going. If you're going through hell, keep going. Our guest today is Ollie Ollerton, a UK Special Forces operative, a four-time best-selling author and star of the hit television series SAS Who Dares Wins and SAS Australia. Ollie's military career began at the age of 18 when he joined the Royal Marine Commandos and toured operationally in Northern Ireland and Iraq. After five years as a commando, Ollie was recommended for SAS Special Forces selection. Only five of the 250 candidates made it through the gruelling six-month selection process. Ollie then spent six years in the Special Boat Service, the SBS, where he undertook high-profile missions in counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism, homeland security, and humanitarian work. After leaving the Special Forces, Ollie held roles as a private security contractor in Iraq, project manager for major infrastructure projects in the Middle East, where he also trained a 2,000-strong Iraqi Guard Force, and as a bodyguard instructor for private projects and government officials. In addition, Ollie infiltrated child sex trafficking rings in Southeast Asia. Today, he is the founder of Breakpoint, where he provides leadership and development courses to the corporate and public sector that leverages the special forces mindset. Ollie is also the author of four best-selling books and founder of supplement brand Battle Ready Fuel. In this episode, we'll talk with Ollie about how he made it through the most grueling special forces training in the world, not once, but twice, the most impactful moments from his special forces career, his best tips and exercises for you to apply in civilian life, and how you can turn your breaking point into your biggest strength. Before we begin, remember that the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. You've heard of 007. Today, we get to meet the real 00. Let's win the day with Ollie Ollerton. Well, Ollie, so great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on the Win the Day show. Oh, mate, it's an absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this day for a long time, and I am winning the day by doing this. <laughs> we really appreciate you coming on. You're doing so many things at the moment, which I'm really excited to get into, and, and obviously more of your backstory too. To kick things off, what is the mission that you're on today that you're most excited about? My mission is the same mission as every day, really, James, and that is how can I benefit the wider audience you know, my mission, if I had to define it, which is the mission that's on the wall as you walk in this office, is to create a globally identified brand recognized for the positive growth and development of others. At the end of the day, you know, we are a business that is dedicated in the service of others, which I think is such a powerful thing to wake up and feel that you're doing every day. And I'm pretty sure it's a similar kind of ethos for you. Huge. You know, in, in your books, you talk about the importance of the standards that you're around and the people who bring positive and inspiration. Like it's, it's such a big motivating force, just as when you're around people who don't deliver that, it can be extremely debilitating. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned so many of the things in your books of um, maybe decisions that you made that you wouldn't have made if you're around other high achievers and, and big dreamers and things. And that's what I love about the impact that you're, that you're having today. 
Yeah, you know what? I, I, th- I actually think about this a lot. You know, you've got to be so mindful of the people that you surround yourself with. And I thought about this today. You, if you look around you, look at the people that are around you. I think you should not, obviously, it shouldn't be about envy. It shouldn't be about jealousy. But you should look around at people that you surround yourself with. And you should be, you should admire the qualities that they possess. You should look at them and think, I really respect that quality that that person has. Because if you can't come up with anything in the people around you, then they shouldn't be around you. Yeah, huge. Absolutely huge. Uh, Ollie, yeah. you've you've had so many uh, crazy experiences in this one life that you've got that's still, you know, maybe only about halfway through. Uh, what is the most vivid memory that you've got from your childhood and how did that shape the man you are today? You know, I, keep, I talk about this a lot and, you know, I'm sure there's people out there that listen to probably every one of my podcasts and think, bloody hell, give me another story. <laughs> but, you know, it's the one thing, it's my first memory of my entry to this planet. And that is, you know, the chimp story. And I was uh, 10 years old. You know, we um, we went down, we were going swimming, actually, in my hometown. I was 10 years old, and we stumbled across the circus. Um, they were just setting up, and um, I found myself um, in a very sort of private little area that I shouldn't have been in, and um, where I came across a baby chimp. And, um, you know, I was absolutely in love with the program Tarzan at the time. So for me... Seeing that baby chimp, it was like a little piece of Hollywood. And, um, you know, I was compelled. I, I went towards the animal. We started to engage. It was brilliant. It was like this unbelievable moment of this connection between man and beast. Uh, and when I say that, I mean, it was, I wasn't much bigger, really. I was 10 years old. But, you know, it was, it was, more, it was more like two chimps communicating. Um, but, um, you know, that uh, and then this chimp started to feed me. It was passing me food. I wasn't eating it. I was pretending to eat it. And then all of a, all of a sudden there was a, a, a scream that I'll never forget as, um, you know, mummy or daddy saw what was going on, saw me as an immediate threat and um, came on the warpath. Um, the blue sky turned to black very quickly as this thing pounced through the air um, and uh, landed on my chest, pinned me to the floor and started absolutely going crazy. It's first fist came down, knocked everything I had out of me. I just think I, I didn't think I had any more. And then it was fist after fist. It was like a drummer in a rock band, which I think is a great uh, description um, of what was going on, but a big hairy one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then blood started flying around. The thing was starting to bite me. And, um, you know, my life flashed in front of me. It didn't take long because I was 10, very quick. <laughs> you know, in that moment, I managed to, to summon enough courage to do something about it. And, um, you know, managed to get my knee up to my chest and kick the chimp as hard as possible, went to the floor. Gave me a few seconds to get out of there. The chimp got to its feet. It was angrier than ever this time. And it, you know, it came at me at Mac 20. Um, and I just lay there waiting for what was going to happen to happen. And, um, you know, just before it got to me, it was an inch away. The chain caught it around the neck and didn't get to me. And that for me is, you know, really helps me to define what breakpoint is. You know, this was my first breakpoint. It wouldn't be my last, but break point is when you take that short-term step into discomfort for long-term gain. Short-term discomfort was me at 10 years old fighting a 50-kilogram chimp. I didn't get a chance to weigh it, by the way, but it felt heavy. <laughs> um, you know, and the long-term gain of that is the fact I'm here to tell the story. But that was really a defining moment. It was really um, an experience that would really affect my life 
um, moving forward, you know, and it had a very, I'm not just going to say totally detrimental effect on my life, negative effect on my life, because there's a lot of questions I ask about that. Um, you know, like if I didn't get attacked by the chimp, this is a great question. Do you think I'd have made it through the special forces? You know, the selection, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know what I mean? But um, if you're looking at any kind of positives, you know, there were, you know, it, it gave me some kind of burning desire for survival, I guess. Do you, um, do you think about it in terms of a, uh, a metaphor of how just crazy things in life, like crazy negative things, trauma, uh, you know, we've had people on the show have been hit by trucks while they're out riding bikes, all these different things, how life can just completely derail you in the worst way at the craziest possible time? Yeah, no, 100%. You know, and I think at the end of the day as well, you should really not, you know, every experience that we have in life, you shouldn't brush it away. You shouldn't try and forget it. You should try and think of what you've taken from that, from that experience. You know, for me, you know, I look back on that experience and people, you know, it, it gave me a lot of trauma, but the things I took from it, you know, I almost... I'm, it sounds weird, but I'm almost grateful for getting attacked by the chimp that day. You know, it's um, although on that day I wasn't <laughs> feeling that way, but looking back in hindsight, you know, it's like hindsight's a wonderful thing. It never won any wars, but it's great for reflection. And um, you know, these experiences, I've had a lot of my most negative experiences of where I've, I've grown the most. You mentioned in your book the urge to live, that that moment in particular gave you the urge to live for the first time. How can people develop that urge to live without having to go through a potentially life or death situation? Yeah, you don't need to go and uh, find a circus. <laughs> you don't need to find a chimp to, to, to beckon and attack. But really, I think at the end of the day, you have got to understand that I think people are so, so confined through society so confined in um, their belief systems, so confined in respect of their limiting beliefs. And it's really starting to understand that we are infinite. You know, we are absolutely infinite. And sometimes it takes a very um, traumatic event for you to start to understand that. But, you know, that regardless of the traumatic event being there or not, we are, it doesn't, that doesn't change you. You know, it doesn't make you a superman or a superwoman, a traumatic event, it makes you just realize that it gives you a zest for life. It's almost like that brush so close to death made me want to embrace life 100% more. You know, and I really, it's a tough question because, you know, it's like a lot of the stuff we do as a company is breakpoint. You know, it's really starting to teach people. You know, we, it's not very, it's not just a, it's not, we use a special forces kind of format, but we're not, trying to train people to be special forces soldiers. At the end of the day, you know, when we were out on operations and doing things, there was a lot, lot, of, lot at stake. You know, people could die. You know, it's hard to replicate that kind of feeling, that sense of, um, it's very hard to replicate that. So, so trying to push that across to people about really, um, you know, engaging the fact about how important it is to have goals, how much, how important it is to have a mission statement and all that kind of thing. I think the fact of the matter is we're only here once. We've got to make the most of it. Well, apparently here once. <laughs> We've got to make the most of it. We've got to do what we can in this short amount of time because time is running out. You know, we can't, we, um, we're all going in the same direction. Yeah, the stakes are high. This is your life. You've got one life. Yeah, get it done. Yeah, <laughs> get it done. Get it done.
At the age of 18, you joined the Royal Marine Commandos and after five years, you were then selected for Special Forces selection. How would you describe the, which you went through twice, how would you describe <laughs> the other candidates uh, who were with you for the Special Forces uh, training? Yeah, very intimidating. I, I looked around and I looked at them and I thought I felt like a boy in a man's world. Immediately self-doubt, lack of confidence, um, looking at them and how they looked and how I perceived them made me feel extremely weak. You know, and I, I just thought, you know, at that time, I, I can remember I got off the bus to start the first climb of the mountain, which was the start of a six month process, which essentially is nine with continuation training. And, um, you know, I can remember like getting off the bus and thinking, no, you've you're making a mistake. This is not you are in the you are setting yourself up for failure by being here. You know, and there was a little voice in my head at that point that just said, Ollie, just do today. Just do today. So I did just today. And I think it was actually, you know, when I, I look at, you know, we talk about ego and sometimes I think, well, why is the bloody ego invented? No one's got a good word to say about it. But at that point for me, it was, it was ego that kept me from getting back on the bus. You know, I preferred to have failed on the mountain when no one was looking instead of having 280 people see me just get back on the bus. So that was a good thing. Ego stopped me from doing that just do today. The day went really well for me. I came back off the mountain in the top five. A lot of people went home. And that's how I did that course, James. I did every day just do today. When it went to the interrogation phase at the end, which was absolutely horrible, it was just do this second. I think that's a really important message for a lot of people. You know, when your goals, which should scare you, but excite you at the same time, nothing was ever great unless at some point you doubted your ability to achieve it. When the pressure's on, that goal starts to dissolve. You know, because your brain can't see the path to the goal, it disregards it can be done or it starts to reject the fact it can be done. And in those moments, just do today. Just do the next second. Just do the next hour, but keep moving forward. Don't stay still because like water, you'll become stagnant. It's such an important point. When I write uh, Think and Grow Rich, a legacy, and a lot of people reach out to me and they say, how can I, you know, you've written a lot of books. How do I, as you have too, how, uh, how can I go and write a book? And it seems like such an insurmountable goal. But just focusing mm -hmm. on your version of like, just do today. For me, when I wrote Think and Grow Rich, a legacy was just do the best interview I can, which I would then tell in Think and Grow Rich, a legacy. Or if it was a day of preparation, just do today by doing the preparation. And eventually all of those days that you have, which really comes into the win the day mentality as well, all of those things add up over time like a compound interest graph. You start to get exponential rewards the longer you're consistent with just doing today. Yeah, 100%. It's like, you know, and at that point, going back to that point, you know, at that moment of pressure, looking around me, 283, I didn't count them, there was loads of people, you know, a lot of people wanting the same as me. You know, my thoughts, if I focus then on that really big, ambitious goal of being one of the few percent you know after that group five would pass i'd be one of them but for me to think that at that moment become became so unrealistic so don't think about it think about your momentum your you moving forward in that very moment and that's all you've got to do and you know as soon as i climb up as soon as i got onto that mountain those people I started passing straight away, that was milestones of growth. Every person was a milestone of growth. You know, just get that momentum, just, just move forward. And one thing we say as well, which I think is really great, which is something we took from the special forces and sort of put it into this, but one meter square. When all around you is falling apart or becoming overwhelming, 
Bring everything back to one meter square. Focus on your immediate environment. Keep the momentum moving forward. You know, triage that situation. Um, and, you know, one thing I, I say about, you know, look at the things you can't control and just focus on the things you can because they're the only things that matter in that moment. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, in, in special forces training, it looks like it's a real mental and physical battle to find out the people who want it the most. At what stage do they go away from that mental and physical test to actually teaching you training and practical skills that you can take into combat? Your first phase is the the heels phase, which is really a real grunt, you know, true grit, determination, a lot of physical ability. I, I never, you know, when people say, I had these questions quite often saying, what percentage is mental? What percentage is physical? I don't see it like that. You know, I can't do this without this. You know what I mean? Everything starts here, everything. But it's, it's, it's so important to understand that the brain gives up way before the body. It's, it's a self-preservation system. Uh, and once you understand that, you know, you've got a lot more potential. Anyway, going back onto that question is the fact that initially that phase is to weed out those people who really haven't got that sort of mental robustness to get through that real grunt stage. Um, so that's two weeks on the mountains. Anyone that passes that, you lose a lot of people on that. You lose probably, I'd say, 60% of the course on those two weeks. Um, and then should you be successful from that, uh, you then go away to the jungle for six weeks. Um, and four weeks of that, you're fully immersed for 28 days right in the jungle. Your flesh starts to rot. You, are, you get trench foot. You are, you, the only luxury you really have is a toothbrush. And then you have all your fighting kit, your weapon and everything else. The jungle is trying to kill you. The directing staff are trying to kill you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's such a battle. And I think it's such an amazing environment to test the skills of a soldier because before you can even start to think about the tactics of soldiering, you have to make sure that your personal admin, whether that's yourself or your, and, and your kit, like your, your, your weapon and everything else, you have to take care of that before you even think about soldiering. And it's a brilliant environment to test that um you know test that sort of self-admin if you want to call it that once you pass the jungle you are pretty much they kind of know that there's a 80 percent chance of you passing that course and at that point they start to invest in you as a person at that point they start to train you in skills preparing you to fit into your team uh, i always say this that special forces selection doesn't train you to be a special forces soldier per se it more or less trains you to, to be able to fit into your team um, to then start the real training as a special forces operator. Um, so, yeah, that, that point, the jungle phase, you've then started doing all your sort of um, your um, building assault skills, you know, helicopter skills, demolition skills, radio communication, or, or Morse code, everything, you know, medical, the whole lot. And then the last phase which is the hardest phase of all, I, I thought, which um, was the escape and evasion. Um, and that is the final test of, um, of a man's <laughs> mental robustness, I suppose. You know, you can't predict anything until you, because you don't know what's going on in here at the end of the day until that very point where, you know, 36 hours of, uh, I'm not going to call it torture, it's mental torture, it's not physical torture as such. But it is the hardest thing because, yeah, and people say, oh, well, it's just, a, you know, it's not real. But there's a lot at stake. And when you've had that sleep deprivation, that hunt, you can say one wrong word and everything you've trained up to that point is just gone. You know, they can say no at that point. 
It looks like a lot of uh, crazy individuals, you know, pe- crazy in terms of people who don't fit in different things in the traditional sense. They're trying to nurture that individual creativity and then they bring them back into a thriving in a team environment. Is it challenging to, to take an individual who has all of these different things, that these characteristics that don't help them fit in in a traditional sense, to then mould them into being an essential part of a small team? Yeah, you know what? This is a really good question, James, because I actually spend a lot of time thinking about this because a lot of times I get called to corporate events and everything else. You know, they want to talk, you know, leadership. It's always leadership, leadership. And I'm like, first of all, leadership for me is about leadership of self. You know, there's plenty of people out there in leadership roles that can't even lead themselves, and that's where it should start. I've always said this, that I truly believe that special forces operators are more like a group of leaders that adapt to working as a team as opposed opposed to a a, a load of team players that one of them steps outside of that to be the team leader. You know, it really is the fact we are a group of leaders and you've only got to look at lads that lead the special forces. We're very much that self we're very much the lone survivor kind of mentality when we leave you know we, we we go on our own path so you know i i was also very much spoiled when it comes to leadership i was spoiled because i i worked with a, a highly trained group of leaders you know what i mean it was it was like a, it, it was more a group of leaders than it was a team that you know there was one individual that was responsible for that team so yeah i think at the end of the day yeah it's it's it's, it's essential that you get that person I, I call it you know they're, they're not just leaders they're pioneers pioneers you know that are prepared to carve their own path and not follow someone else's footprints and that very much you know when you look at the special forces when they came to fruition back in the you know world war one etc they were laughed out of, of of Whitechapel when the concept of them came to you know when it was introduced and really when i look at that it's like why were they so successful with limited resources and assets, but caused so much more damage? And that's really because they were given the autonomy and the responsibility to get the job done at any cost. They didn't have to seek a higher command to take the shot. You know what I mean? And that's what made them so different than everyone. So a group of pioneers put together, a group of leaders put together with the get the job done, whatever attitude. Obviously, enough rope to hang yourself. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, it was the fact that we don't have to seek a higher command to get the job done. We take the shot. And, um, you know, when, when you look at the corporate relevance of that, there's a lot of people in corporate structures that haven't got that autonomy. They're scared to take the shot. They don't want it. And then before you know it, they've missed the, the opportunity because they've got to make a phone call before they can make a decision. You know, so that's one of the things we really put across in a lot of our leadership training that you have to give people the autonomy and responsibility to be able to take the shot. Huge, absolutely huge. How did you went on to, to then join the special boat service, the SBS? How did you feel ahead of your first operation as part of the SBS compared to your first one as part of the Royal Marine Commandos? Yeah, what a different world. It was such a different world. And it was, you know, it's everything I dreamed of. You know, when I was 10, when I got attacked by the chimp, that was the same year that they stormed the Iranian embassy in London. So it's a big year for me, 1980. The significance of that attack, which the whole world saw on TV. And I feel that was the one thing that really captured me as a kid. Seeing that, that planted a seed so deep within my subconscious. And 
then my first operation with the SBS was exactly the same, not exactly the same operation, but it was exactly, you know, that look, you know, the balaclavas, the black kit, the, the small submachine guns. It was that moment. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like almost like everything. I joined the Royal Marines for that feeling, that experience, that, that sense of that brotherhood. I didn't get that. I didn't get it there. So that's why I went for special forces selection. But all of a sudden, you know, I can remember that day when we were going out of camp, going home. We had pages, you know, and um, all of a sudden the pager went off. Now, a lot of times they would just do a check on, you know, to make sure there was a comms check, everyone check in. But this time the code came up, which meant <laughs> this is a real one. And it was just like, wow, it's happening. It's happening. You know, a lot of times we used to go off and you'd sit out in a forward operating base for weeks, sometimes out at sea on a ship waiting for the job to go down. But this job went in, in straight away. We were flown to a forward operating base. The job went down that night. It happened all overnight. We were back lifting the boats out of the water as the sun came up the next morning. It was just phenomenal. And that was like the difference. You know, that felt like the difference. Wow. And the, the Iranian embassy incident that you mentioned before, that was like the very first time that the SAS had been seen in public, wasn't it? And, and even publicly acknowledged? Yeah, no, 100%. And like, um, Margaret Thatcher was in power at the time, and she wanted to send a message to the world that not to mess with our, with, with our assets and not to mess with our special forces. You know, usually what you do on those situations, you will blanket the whole front off so that the media can't see anything, they can't film anything. But Margaret Thatcher wanted to show the world what we had and what a significant attack that was, you know, <laughs> what a significant rescue that was, um, which is still talked about and renowned all over the world. The, the SBS motto, not by strength, by guile, how would that be revealed in a, in a practical sense during missions? At the end of the day, it's, it's not just by strength, it's by skill, isn't it? You know, and tactics and, and everything else. So really, that, what that displays for me is really, it's about this up here. You know, this is the best weapon you've got. And really that, you know, the thinking soldier, um, it's not just about grunt and... Um, uh, blood, sweat, and tears. It's about how we can use this. So that really, not by strength, by guile, really, really sort of displays that sort of mental strength and, um, you know, the thinking soldier. So rather than like a level playing field, it's what can you do to win with just, you know, the, the, the most, in a most efficient way possible. Yeah, it's that having, you know, thinking outside of the box, doing things, being dynamic, totally dynamic, and, um, you know, not not being so addicted to structure that when it falls down you fall down, mm. you know, it's, it's, and that is something that, you know, if there's anything I took from the special forces is a couple of things. First of all, it was the power of process. And secondly, it was the, the, the ability to, to, to understand that no plan survives first contact. Mike Tyson said that a little <laughs> bit more, uh, they'll probably explain it a bit better. And that's, you know, everyone has a plan to get a punch in the face. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's just, and we, again, you know, when it comes to the corporate world, you know, it's like, that's another thing we teach. No plan survives first contact. Remain totally dynamic and understand that any sort of progress towards a goal is never linear. Mm. Uh, people in America, they hear a lot about Navy SEALs, Delta Force, but uh, a lot of these, they're all based, I believe, on, on the, uh, the SAS and the SBS. It was really the, the British Special Forces that created all of these other Special Forces units around the world in a modern sense. Uh, what is the skill set of the SAS and the SBS? How, like, how capable are they on the battlefield, and how devastating would that be against just a regular force? 
Yeah, you know what? They we always laugh at this. Obviously, you know this. You know, everyone wants to say that they're they're. You know, and I don't sit there arguing. At the end of the day, you know, I'm 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 a little bit biased because I was part of the best um, special forces <laughs> uh, military in the whole world. But really, you know, one thing: why are the why are this the 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 UK special forces so good? Um, first of all, we have the heritage. You know, the knowledge, the heritage um, to back that. Secondly, I know this is a bit of a funny one. Comes down to money, mate. At the end of the day, we haven't got the money. So we have to be, it's all about being the master of all, the uh, jack of all trades, master of none. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, you know, you've got the Americans have got so much money. They've got someone to hold the weapon and they'll bring in a number two to pull the trigger. You know, <laughs> it's like the NFL. So really, you got the offense, you got the defense, you got the special teams. Exactly, exactly. So really, you know, at the end of the day, also, you know, the, the harshness of the environment that we train in, you know, which really, at the end of the day, that builds that mental robustness, that resilience. So, you know, we train in so many different um, uh, theaters of combat, you know, whether that's in, in the desert, in the Arctic, the jungle, everything. So so really for us, you know, again, it's all about being uh, the jack of all trade, master of none. So we have, we have to be that sort of universal soldier. The amount of skills and the amount of, um, um, you know, weapon systems and everything else, you have to have the knowledge on, you know, it, it just makes you a lot more, it gives you a lot more bandwidth as a special forces soldier. You mentioned earlier when you were in special forces training, how apprehensive you were and that feeling of wanting to get on the bus. What was the moment when you recognized that, yes, I belong. Yes, I'm elite. Yeah. You know what? Well, really for me, it was, you know, at the end of the day, it was like going through that selection course was such a a massive step in my development as, as an individual, because at the end of the day, you know, first of all, when I kind of, you know, when I was thinking about going as leaving the military, going to be a civilian uh, or go to special forces, it was actually my officer that was the one. He was the one that made me make that decision. And it was through his belief in me. He had more belief in me than I had in myself. And if it wasn't for his, I almost did selection because I felt I had a duty to honor his confidence in me. You know, I, I, but Really, up until that point, I thought, you know, I went to Northern Ireland with him. I went to um, Operation Desert Storm in Iraq with him. And I actually thought he didn't value me as a, as a soldier at all. And then I random, randomly bumped into him, you know, sometime later down the track. And I told him, look, I'm going, I'm leaving. And he was like, ah, no way. He said, please don't do that because I believe you got the skills um, or the aptitude to be a special forces soldier. And you'll regret that for the rest of the rest of your life if you don't do it. So really that for me was like, I was like, wow, I, I borrowed confidence off that man. And that's why it's so important. You know, if you are a leader, the, the effect you can have on the people around you that look up to you, you know, to any kind of those words of confidence have such a deep and meaningful effect on any individual. And it certainly did on me, but really then pushing forward for special forces selection, that growth that I felt through that course, all my life, I'd given myself a hard time. You know what I mean? It was like all my life, I, I, you know, self-doubt, self-criticism, and I'm, that's never gone away. You know what I mean? But you know, it's it's different levels of of, of self-criticism, criticism and belief. But really, for me, you know, when I got to the end of that course, I was like, wow, I'm like one of five out of that 280, whatever the number was on that day. I must have something. Mm. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's such a big one, and that that then um, a lot of the special forces people that I've spoken to have mentioned that there is that camaraderie between the the different units. Obviously, of course, a lot of banter and, and friendly banter and all those types of things. Did you notice any common traits between the Delta operators, the SEALs, the the British special forces, like the the Aussies? Like, what were the common traits between the most elite soldiers uh, from all around the world? Yeah, I mean, listen, I and especially as a you know, as, as a special forces soldier, we work with units all over the world. You know, at the end of the day, you know, there's no easy special forces selection. <laughs> it's a fact that you know, there's never going to be an easy. But you know, I'll go to them because that one's an easy one. You know, they're, they're all meant to be hard because the environment they're training you for. Now, pretty much a lot. It's not the same for every special forces unit, but you know, and certainly as a contractor as well you know i spent a long time as a, as a military contractor wor- working with a lot of former special forces from all over the world there's almost like this um there's this sense of belief in someone else's abilities once you know they've done a special special forces selection now how that sort of plays out when you're working together is you know that that person has a um a, a strong strength strength of belief in their own abilities you know they're the kind of person that will get the job done, whatever. You know, they've got that can-do attitude. You know, you're dealing with someone highly motivated, highly driven, and um, and really that 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 is for anyone who's done any kind of credible special forces um, selection process. So there's a certain set of skills, as Liam Neeson once said, that um, – you know, that a very particular you know, set of skills. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, it's your character. You know, it's the character. Forget, you know, these skills on a weapon system or whatever. It's your skills as a person, your your ability as a person. And 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 knowing that, you know, whoever's done a so you know, especially that yeah, we we got a lot of time for the Delta lads because we feel the Delta lads are more like the SBS than the than the Navy SEALs. But really, um, it's understanding that um, you know it's that character of person. You know, you can rely on that person hundred uh, percent. You often talk about breathe, recalibrate, deliver through the work that you do. Can you share an example of how someone could use that in a uh, civilian setting? Yeah, you know what, and that came from me breaking down what we go through when we're in. You know, I I questioned a, a very good mate of mine, one of my best mates, Foxy, who's on, who's and also a, a former SBS operator. He's on the TV show. Um, you know, we sat down and we said, how did we manage throughout that time of absolute mayhem? How do we manage to, to step outside of that mayhem, slow everything down to our speed so that we sat in, that we were in control? We put ourselves in the, in the driving seat. What did we do? What was happening? So really, let's, let's look at what happens. When you get into a very stressful situation, you don't even know you're doing it, but your breathing starts to become very erratic. What happens then, cortisol levels start to increase. Our brains can only handle five to nine bits of information at any one time. When we're stressed, that goes down to one, maximum two. The only way you can alleviate that confusion through the, the, uh, the, the rise of that cortisol is by breathing. You know, and really about in that situation, because any kind of situation, when it starts going fast, and that's not just in a special forces environment, when things start to go wrong, that could be a road, you know, a traffic incident or even an argument, it goes, it, it, it ramps up very quickly. Now, you can't allow yourself to get pulled along at that speed because the situation will grab you around the neck and it will rag you around like a little doll. 
So basically what you have to do in that moment, and it sounds like a long process, but it doesn't have to be. If you know you're going into a situation, you've got to control the cortisol. And the only way you can do that is by breathing. They teach it in yoga. People that do yoga will understand that, but that box breathing, breathe in for three to five seconds, hold for three to five, out for three to five seconds, hold for three to five, and control your pattern of breathing. That lowers the cortisol. And at that moment, that's what we call recalibration. Recalibration is really about letting go of all the things that don't matter in that moment and focusing on the one to two things that do. And once you're in that emotional state, you then deliver the action. Because if you don't control your faculties, you will move, your, your brain is just wired to go, get me out of here, whatever it takes. It will take the shortcut just to get out of that situation. Nine times out of 10, you are stepping into further danger or putting yourself, taking actions or making decisions that you're, you're going to regret afterwards. Yeah, you can so take, just that simple process. Yeah, you can see that in scuba diving, uh, isn't it? When it's like you, you don't you suck in like twice as much oxygen if you're feeling yeah. anxious. Yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. It's the same when you're, you know, when you're above the surface. Mm. You know, the thing is, a lot of the time, people actually walking around. I know, you know, we. Uh, this is again something that we teach a lot to the to our to our audience, and that's the fact that. You know, this isn't just about being a special forces soldier and being shot at. This is about everything in your life. If you know you're going into a situation that is going to be stressful, you know it could be a negotiation, it could be speaking to your boss about a pay rise, it could be whatever it is. Control your breathing before you go in. Because if you go with that heightened sense of, sense of emotion, which is basically your fight or flight response, you are not going to make the right decision or take the right action. You know, also, if you're, you know, suddenly find yourself in that situation, the first thing you should do is take a breath before you take action. You know, it can happen really quickly, really quickly. But yeah, breathe, recalibrate, deliver the action. And nine times out of 10, you'll make a decision that's based on clarity and not confusion. <laughs> Which can have a very big, very big difference to sending an email that could ruin your career or relationship. Yeah, absolutely. We've all, we've all listen, we've all, we've all been in that situation, whether it's road rage, whether it's an argument with your your, your partner, whether it's something, how you've reacted to your kids, we all do it. And then afterwards you go away going, why did I say that? Your face goes red, you feel like an idiot. You can avoid that from happening. You know, it's easier said than done, but if you can make that conscious effort not to react in that moment, take a knee in the heat of battle and just go through that process very quickly, it makes all the difference. And listen, I'm not perfect. I still react. I still get flared up in the car and stuff like that but I'm extremely conscious of when that does happen. Yeah, the quicker you can take that breath, the quicker you can get the situation back on track. 100%. Mm. 100%. What are you, are there any things that you do instinctively from all your special forces training in, in life today? Process. You know, I understand how, how important process is. You know, when I get up, I have a very strict, regimented, if you even want to call it that, routine. And my, you know, my, my best day, it's the best version or the best day and I say my best day because every day is not like this, but my, I aim to do this every day and that's get up very early in the summer. That can be as early as half past four in the morning. Um, I get out of bed. I go downstairs. I go into my sauna. I've got an infrared sauna. I sit in there. I use my uh, YouTube for a guided meditation around about 20 minutes. I'll then come out of there. I'll then go and get the dog. Go for a run. I'll put some clothes on first, by the way. 
um, and then you know, and and then by the time I got back to my home office, which is the only time I will turn my phone on, I'll take it off flight mode. I then can do probably an hour's work that would take me two hours to do later on during that day. Now the reason I've detailed that is because I don't want to. I don't want to do that. You know, at the end of the day, people say, "Oh, it's because you're an ex special forces soldier, you can do that." That's absolute rubbish because I bleed and breathe just like everyone. You know, I have the same things going on up here as everyone does. Oh, you've worked hard enough. Let's start on a Monday. You know, blah, 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 this, that, and the other. Oh, you tired. You know, all these range of things because your brain is wired to take that creative procrastination. It will try, you know, your, your brain says, go check your phone, check your email. It's looking to try and steer you in a path that's going to avoid the unknown stress that's about to happen. You know, and that for me is, is the point I'm getting to is process is what gets me through that process. I, I've got to switch off the emotional messages going on in here and just follow process. I know at that point I wake up, I don't need an alarm, alarm clock anymore, you know, because I'm so used to getting up at that time. So I wake up, I know straight away I've got to get out of bed, you know, and that's a process. Get out of bed, get up, go downstairs, do the swan, da, 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 this, that, and the other. You know, especially in the winter after the sauna, what do you think my head's saying? Stay in, the radiator's just come on, the coffee machine is there, the bean to cup coffee machine. Da, 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 da. You worked hard yesterday. Why don't you go for a run tomorrow? All this stuff. But no, you follow the process, put your trainers on, get the dog, take a step outside. As soon as you close that door, everything changes. Now, if I have a bad day after that routine, I've won every day. I don't care how bad the day is, but if I've allowed my brain to combat me or dominate over me and I have a bad day, that day is something I prefer to forget. And you should never want to forget any days. Well, some days you've got no choice on that, but you know, so really for me, it's about process. Process is so powerful. Don't expect to be motivated. It comes and goes. I don't care if you're an astronaut, special forces soldier, gold medalist, motivation comes and goes. It's not there all the time. Um, and that's where process really is important from A to B to C to D, follow that process and you'll get there. What if you're out of your environment? Say you're hopping on a, a flight to Australia to go and film an episode of your epic show, SAS Australia. You've had zero sleep on the plane. You're in a hotel room. Maybe there's construction next door. You've had no sleep and you've got to rock up on and, and deliver on camera all this pressure and, and everything's riding on you. Have you got something that you do to make sure you can get in the zone and deliver the best in that moment? Mate, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> sounds very familiar indeed. What you signed up for you know, with your TV career. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I've been in that situation time and time again. But the thing is, you know, at the end of the day, if I can't do, you know, I've also got to look at, I've got to be careful. I, I, I understand how my body works. I understand when I'm feeling tired. I understand when my mind's pretending that I'm tired to try and avoid something. You know, and I think understanding how I'm wired, understanding exactly what's going on, very in touch with who I am. I think that helps me to understand the days when I do need to take a rest. Like for me, again, getting up in the morning, right? I don't set the alarm. So if I sleep till six, my body needs it. You know what I mean? And, that, and that's where, the way I run things. You know, if I'm going overseas, I can't get that workout in. I can't do my routine. I don't give myself a hard time. You know, a lot of the weekends, I don't do that routine. You know, I give myself a break. I have a lie-in. That's never really a lie-in as such. You know, six, six, six thirty is a lie-in. 
Um, but really, it's just understanding that, you know, I adapt. You know, a lot of times I can't, you know, like in the morning, for instance, not tomorrow morning, but, you know, this week, I couldn't do my routine yes, on, on Monday because I had to be on a train early down to London. But, you know, I, I just understand that that will be a day that I, I have to put stuff to one side. But at least I've got a good reason to do that, you know. So, you know, at the end of the day, you can't give yourself a hard time when you don't do it, as long as you've got a valid excuse. And it's not just your mind doing that creative procrastination that it loves to do. For sure. We've got some questions now from the Win the Day community. And if you want to find out what guests we have coming up on the Win the Day podcast, and if you would like to ask them some questions of your own, go and join the Win the Day group on Facebook. The very first question comes from Nathan in Sydney. How do you help people get really honest about what their personal mission is and what their true goals are? Um, there is a process around that. You know, it's really important that you've got to start to understand that, um, you know, a goal has to be extremely selfish. You know, a goal is not about how it looks to the outside world. You have to be passionate about that because if you're not passionate about it, you're never going to achieve it. So really, I think the first thing to do with anyone that, that um, really wants to evolve in life is they have to be 100% honest with where they are right now. You know, at the end of the day, it's like putting in, it's like putting your, you want to go somewhere with your GPS. If you don't know where you are right now, you're never going to find your destination. So it's 100% being totally honest with where, you are, where, where you're at right now. And I'd like to make a point of saying that at the moment, I am getting so tired of people that aren't, are not authentic. You know, you see it everywhere. Everyone is faking perfection, especially on egogram, which I call it. <laughs> you know, everyone's faking perfection. No one is actually being, well, I wouldn't say no one. There's a lot of people out there painting this picture of perfection. And it's such a lie. It's such a lie. You know, be absolutely honest with yourself. You know, write down all your weaknesses. Because if you can't expose your weaknesses, you can't do anything about them. You know, so to, to, to really, you know, it's like when I, I went through some mental health issues, I came back and basically I wanted to start this company called Breakpoint. Breakpoint is all about helping other people. I was broken at the time I came up with that. Now, how can I help other people if I'm broken? If I didn't expose all of my weaknesses and do something about that, there's no way I could have achieved what I wanted to achieve. So really, it's about being 100% honest with yourself. And then really, when it comes to your goals, once you've defined that, started to address your weaknesses, that could be alcohol, it could be drug, whatever it is. Once you've addressed that and got yourself to a place where that is no longer evident, that is a much better standing point to state your goals. You've got a much better foundation for that. Mm. And I want, to, I want to acknowledge you for a moment, my friend, with, um, with just how honest and vulnerable and upfront you are with your books. If you haven't gone and grabbed a copy of Ollie's books, uh, Breakpoint as well, Battle Ready, these are amazing books. It's, it comes across so well. You did an incredible job with those books. So if you've had the strength to, and vulnerability to do it, I think that gives a lot of hope to a lot of other people. So well done on that. Uh, we have Tim and Gladson who asked, is it true, this is an interesting question, is it true people in the SAS and SBS inflict pain on each other to keep from getting bored and to keep on edge? <laughs> I love that question. <laughs> I think possibly, look, I'll, I'll look for an element of, of, of um, truth in that and, and probably mental torture, yeah. You know what I mean? They're, and it's it's always from a joking kind of nature, but, you know, we're just like a, bunch, a load of kids all together, you know. <laughs> you know, jokes on each other and practical jokes and everything else. So that's probably the only <laughs> element, but you don't sit there and start, you know, 
a hot poker in the eye kind of thing just because you're poor. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Uh, Brad in Vancouver asked, how do you process some of the atrocities you went through in war? Do you have to replay them with a different mindset to come to terms with it? It's, um, it's another great question, but I think you've got to understand that, you know, when these you've got to take yourself out of that equation and not allow yourself to be the victim of the situation. You've got to understand your power has to be the purpose of what you're doing. It's like, you know, when I run across the Southeast Asia, um, child, prostitu ch child prostitution and slavery, I've just come back from the UK, I've reunited with my son. I've not seen him for eight years before I did that. Seeing my son then, it was like, amazing to see him then i went over to southeast asia saw saw kids my son's age that were being sold into a life of child prostitution and slavery now i could have looked at that and gone you know and, and all kinds of mental trauma and everything you know that could have related to that but really when i then focused on them as opposed to me and how i was my actions were helping to change their the destiny of their lives that became a lot more powerful than the atrocities that I was witnessing. You know what I mean? So it took me out of being the, the victim and knowing that everything that I was doing was for the greater good of helping them. So define your power away from yourself and don't allow yourself to be, you know, to be subject to being the victim. Love it. Uh, Mary in Canada asked, would you recommend your own children follow in your footsteps? Um, no, I would not. And the reason being is because we were all put on this planet to find our own path in life. You know, at the end of the day, if my son said to me one day, look, I'm joining the military, I'd support him 100%, but I wouldn't shoehorn, shoehorn him into it. You know, we're all here to find our own path in life. And I think we can support, but I, I, should, I wouldn't want to start shoehorning, you know, and start saying this is what you should do. I... I I know my son wouldn't do that anyways. Actually, my son's just turned up about four weeks ago and now lives with me for the first time ever. So <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing. But yeah, no, he's, um, he's, a, he's, he's different. And, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I'd just like to say as well, you know, I have a lot of different views nowadays about war itself. You know, I'm, I'm, I look at the validity of some of these conflicts and some of these wars, and I don't have a lot of belief in the motive behind them. So I certainly wouldn't be pushing people to do the same. Does the validity come from the costs of war? The costs and also the motives, you know, the motive at the end of the day, then further um, amplify the cost because, you know, I know a lot of people that come back with missing limbs and, you know, a lot of talk, you know, some, some people, obviously not all scars are, uh, are evident um but really you know the, the the meaning behind the reason to go to war you know and that's very apparent in this world today you know the world we experience on a daily basis as well you know i think they you know they're, they're making this they're, they're writing paychecks for other people's lives and i think it's it's a terrible thing oh the agendas and invisible strings on on everything it's mm -hmm. it's crazy isn't it yeah yeah no absolutely uh, and this, I think, is a good timing for the next question. Karen in Ireland asked, as a soldier, did you ever put yourself in the other side's shoes where you feel empathy, sadness, or even not want to fight? Yeah, 100%. But I wouldn't say, you know, at the end of the day, I always did that. I can remember when I went to my first first war. I call it, They call it a conflict, but if someone's trying to kill you, I call it a war. Um, and that was in Northern Ireland, you know. And it's like I always put myself in their shoes, and I, I thought very much like, 
we were fighting the IRA out there. And I said it on a daily basis that if I was born in Ireland, I would probably be in the IRA. You know, and I've always had held that sort of thought. Whenever I go to any kind of war zone and have been anywhere, I always put myself in their shoes. You know, it's like when I was in Iraq, I, you know, I got attacked by the militia and I thought, well, I'd probably be in the militia if I was, you know, and I lived in, you know, when I looked at that, I thought, you know, the Americans moved in and everything else. I thought, how would I feel? How would I feel if that was my country? I want to rebel. I want to be, you know, like the, the resistance or whatever. So, yeah, 100%. Uh, and final question from the Win the Day community. Uh, Brett in Brisbane asked, what's the hardest thing that you've experienced as an elite soldier? Uh, as an elite soldier, I mean, really, selection was, was, was the hardest thing as an elite soldier. One thing I'll say, look, I, I make no bones about this, is the fact that when I passed Special Forces selection, I expected to be at war every day. It's something that I wanted to be. It's something that's where I wanted to be. That didn't happen for me. You know, I wasn't around the times of the Iraq. You know, when I was in Iraq, it was as a contractor I'd left. I was a military contractor. So really for me, and, and the reason for a lot of my frustration as a soldier is because I wasn't at war every day. You know, there wasn't loads going on. I did, I did the hardest thing for me, I tell you what, and I know it's going to be a bit deflating for someone asking that question, is the fact I could not handle life as a peacetime soldier. It was that was the most frustrating thing for me. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be at war every day and sitting there around on camp, you know, training, training, training. That was the hardest thing for me. Mm. So sorry, it's not you know, there wasn't blood and guns and bullets in that answer, but that was it. <laughs> well, let's switch gears now because so much of your uh, your journey and the life that you're in now is inspired by that time after you left the military and you did a lot of soul searching when you're in Australia and, and all of those different things before breakpoint. Um, the structure of special forces was a big part of your discipline and desire to maintain that excellence. Why is it that so many people who are in the special forces struggle to maintain that discipline and that strength when they leave? I think they lose their sense of purpose. You know, when you come out, you know, it's almost like if you want to relate it to someone that's at the top of their game, you know, like in, in football or any kind of sport, Olympic, any kind of Olympic um medalist or whatever you know coming out of that and then all of a sudden seeing this massive void and struggling to find purpose i didn't i didn't understand what that word meant when i was serving i didn't understand what it's, it's nothing that ever came into my vocabulary you know but i really did start to understand it afterwards when i lost that sense of purpose i came outside and i was like i noticed i think you know, I had no discipline as such because I was drinking heavily. I, I knew the things I was doing wrong, but I was still doing them. But really, I lost that sense of purpose, that's, that, that enthusiasm for life. I was bouncing around war zones looking for this external fix that I thought was going to make me happy. It took me a long time to realize that the, there is no external fix. And it, it was only when I was forced to look within that I realized the answers were, at, that's where the answers are all, all along. Like the leadership so starts really, with you, like you mentioned earlier. 100%. You know, it's like when I actually realized, you know, it's nothing's, it's none of it. We are so much output, output, output. And we, we don't, we rarely think about input, you know, but I was forced into that. You know, I was, I was at my lowest ebb after 10 years after leaving, started thinking about suicide. I'd just gone overseas to do that. Uh, thing with with helping the kids came back that fell apart and it was like my life just fell apart at that point 
but that forced me to stop looking for the answers externally and it forced me to look within and it was the you know what my greatest obstacle obstacle was my greatest discovery and that obstacle was 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 really you know the the fact that i was forced to look within and looking within very quickly the return on investment was absolutely unbelievable mm. i'd love to zero in a little bit there on what you what you mentioned some of those things there uh was there a particularly dark day that stands out where you were at your lowest point that you remember yeah, no, absolutely. And when I came back, I came back to Australia. I was living in Australia at the time. You know, I, I stumbled across something overseas that I just thought this, it was, it meant more to me than the military. It was that missing piece that had always been missing, you know, and I, I just sat there thinking, wow, this is, I felt I had the, the biggest sense of purpose I'd ever had. And, um, you know, I just thought this is me for the rest of my life. I found it. I found it. Wow. And I stumbled across it. Uh, and that was the power of helping people, especially less fortunate. I wasn't being paid for that. You know, I was funding that myself. Um, and then that all crum- crumbling down and then ending up back in um, in Australia. You know, that as soon as I got back in a pretty short time after that, th- those days, that gr- there was a group of days that when I actually started thinking about suicide, that was that was the point where. I went, whoa, what are you doing? You know, I never, I don't know if I'd have attempted it. I never attempted it. But the fact I was there, that was a wake up call for me to go, you know, and I heard that voice again, that that little voice I heard again that said, Ollie, it does not end like this. I heard that and that voice, hearing that voice was like, no, it doesn't. And that was at that point, you know, that I then started to, I started to realize that the more we focus on anything, the bigger it gets. Now that can be positive, but if it's a negative thing for me, hating my environment, hating myself, the more I did that, the bigger that was going to become. So really it was about taking myself out of there, starting to visualize, starting to project of what I wanted to look like. Once I could visualize what that looked like, I then add emotion to that to then create what that feels like, which is so important. And it was that that pulled me out of that darkness. Yeah. And that really, that was, you know, that was, you know, a lot of people, I still, you know, I want to make a point of this because I think it's really important. When it comes to mental health, I started to question myself, right? I was sat there going, I've got mates with legs that are blown off, this, that, da, 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 da. I started to compare, why did I deserve to have mental health issues? I started to think there was some kind of criteria, some kind of checklist. The fact of the matter is, it's, it's relative to you. We are our own barometer. Now, it's as simple as this. There's seven days in a week. If you're feeling bad five out of seven, you need to do something about it. If you're feeling bad four out of seven, you need to do something about it. You know, at the end of the day, we have bad days. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we should be feeling good more so than not. And if we're not, the military don't own PTSD. You know what I mean? The military don't own mental health issues. You need to do something about it. And that's when, you know, I then reverse that into the answer to our mental health is our mental wealth. The more we invest in ourselves, the better the return on investment. How is PTSD handled in special forces? Like, um, do they assume because of your superior tactical training that you would be better equipped to handle something like PTSD? Well, it's, it's funny you should say that. Well, it's not funny, but, um, <laughs> um, you, you know, I did hear a statistic recently that there is a lot less mental health issues and PTSD in the special forces than any other unit. But 
may still have their issues. But, you know, at the end of the day, a lot's changed since I joined. You know, I've been out a long time, James. Uh, you know, back in my day, you know, it's shut up, have a beer, and get on with it. You know, and I know that attitude. And, and the more we can do to change that, the better. You know, and I look back, I left with that mentality. You know, I look back now and I was trying to be this, um, you know, I, I listen, I'm a big alpha male. I'm all for being alpha. But I came out with this sort of macho attitude that showing any kind of weakness is, or any kind of emotion is weak and um, it should be hidden away. And I look back now, now on, I look back on that now and I think how weak I was for not being able to help myself, for not being able to take that help from other people that were there to support me. I look at that and then I think how weak I was for that. Mm. You know, so, but really, you know, if you sit there, you know, and that's how I thought. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm, ex, I'm a former special forces soldier. I can't have mental health issues. Da, 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 da. Stop labeling yourself. You know, at the end of the day, it's simple. Are you feeling below par? More so than not. If you are, do something about it. And it's actually when I went to see a spiritual psychologist that everything started turning around for me. You know, they're the ones that reversed the, the lens and told me to look within. And that was, that was life changing. Yeah. Can you tell us more about what happened during that, that encounter? Yeah. No, it's, I went, um, I was talking about this today, actually, James. It was actually in Brisbane. I was in Brisbane at the time and I came back from Iraq and it was like, I started to, at this point, started to question a lot, you know, looking back, thinking, wow, you know, this, this is not good. It's probably the first time I'd actually sat there and thought about that. I was drinking too much. You know, I was coming back from a war zone and I do empathize with my partner at the time, Nat, who was a psychologist, thank God, because she sent me a fortune. <laughs> um, <laughs> But really, you know, it's, it's, it's like starting to think about how the people around me, how, how I'm affecting them. And it started to make me question myself a lot. And at that point, I knew by going to a doctor that they would slide me across a load of pills and they were not going to help. You know, I've had friends that, that have done that and, and then died shortly afterwards. So really, for me, it was like I wanted to seek something alternative to that option. and. I don't know. I just was, I was just almost drawn to this person that, that wasn't far, far from me, me who, um, who was a psychologist, but in a more sort of holistic um, kind of way. So basically just that first session there, I went there and it was incredible, you know, and I sat there and for the first time when I did group meditations and, you know, that kind of stuff I would have never have done under my own steam, but him pushing me into that, it, that was life changing. That was unbelievable. Mm. So yeah, that was that was really the start of me starting to to, to reflect and look inwards. Mm. And in battle ready, you said you're happier than ever because you found your inner purpose and you followed it. Was that the process that you went through there, or was that something that happened a little bit later that just added a little bit more clarity to to that sort of? No, life no, that, that, that's exactly that. As you just said, a bit more clarity because later on down the track, you know, I was searching. You know, I've I look back and you know I've had great I've had a great life. It's been it's been it's been amazing, but I've always had that I'm not settled in my environment kind of feeling. I'm, I'm not at home here. What's Something's not right. I've always felt that. And the only time I have felt that is when I stumbled across, it was after that happened, after the psychologist, you know, the spiritual psychologist. It was then when I went to Southeast Asia, stumbled across that experience, which was, again, something that was devastating for me. But look at the silver lining I took from that. I, I understood the power of helping other people. And that was so powerful. That would then be the heartbeat and DNA of starting my company, Breakpoint. 
you know, it's something I'd never considered before, a life in service of others. And I think it's a really good way for a lot of people to reflect. If you're feeling a bit like you're in this monotonous routine, you, you know, life's a bit mundane, life's a bit flat. Don't reflect on your job as just a means for paying your bills. Start to look at how your job is positive, positively affecting the life of others. You know, and once you reflect on it like that, it gives you a greater sense of purpose than just paying for your car finance or for your kids' bills or whatever. You know, a lot of time people can't just say, oh, well, I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to do this. And da, 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 da. They can't do that. But you can reframe. You know, it's a simple process to reframe exactly what you're doing. And that was a massive thing for me. I tell you what, the thing that changed my life, I came out of the military, money, 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 money. Where can I earn money? Oh, go to Iraq as a contractor, earn loads of money. It was all money. Money was in the driving seat. I was money's bitch. You know what I mean? Alcohol. I was also alcohol's bitch. You know what I mean? And basically that, that was in the driving seat. When I stumbled, I learned so much from that operation in Thailand because all of a sudden, I had a greater passion that was far superior to the driving force for, for revenue. And the finances became the byproduct. And that is how I've lived. Ever. And that's why I'm the happiest I've ever been, because front and center is my passion and my mission for what I'm doing. And no longer is money. Because when you've got that attitude, right, money's in control or anything, whether that's money, pornography, whether that's alcohol, whatever it is, you are never going to be satisfied. You know what I mean? With the money thing, once you get to that next goal, whatever it is, you want the next, you want the next. It's never ending. You're never going to be happy. But when you've got that, you know, when your passion is, is, is driven by something more powerful than that, your sense of purpose, which it is for me now, the money is a byproduct. Such an important distinction. So well yeah. said. Through your TV shows and also your military career, uh, you've trained so many people, you know, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people. How quickly can you tell whether someone has what it takes to succeed and, and what are the signs that you're looking for? You can tell by their energy, you know, by their commitment as well. You know, I deal with a lot of people. And I was just talking about this again today. It's like I do a lot of talks, you know, a lot of times when I'm bought, I'm bought in by companies to, to help companies evolve. Um, but there's never a greater audience than the audience that are totally invested in developing themselves. Do you know what I mean? It's like when you've got an audience that they are, they are hungry for that content because they want to add that value to their own life. And when you can see that in a person and you can see there and you can feel that it's an energy exchange as opposed to you, it's like, you know, some, some, some um, environments I end up in um, doing my presentations and stuff, I feel like a, a, an energy bucket with a hole in it. You know, it's just leaking out, pouring out. And, you know, the more you put in, it's just pouring out. But when I have an audience and people around me that you can feel that they are so invested in self-development, they really, they're going to meet you halfway and some, it becomes like this energy circuit as opposed to just your energy pouring out and, and going nowhere. It becomes this energy exchange and that's amazing. You can feel it. You can, you can sense it. And, and that is just amazing. But really those people that, that want to invest in this, you know, you, cause I can say what I want. I can sit here talking till I'm blue in the face about stuff, but if someone's not invested in, you know, taking on board what I'm saying, yeah, it's just, a, you know, it's, 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 it's going to have a limit, a very, a very short limit as well. 
And speaking of great energy, shout out to Laura, Danny and Lisa and the Breakpoint team doing some amazing things. What are you working on now that's most excited about? With You've got Breakpoint, you've got Battle Ready Fuel, you might have a few more books in the works, TV shows. Yeah, we're looking to get everything online now. So, no, that's a passion for me. You know, got Denny and Lisa out here that, you know, they're pushing sort of the event side of the business, so the front-facing side of the business, you know, which is then giving us, me and Laura, the freedom to then branch away and start to really get the online program so we can really reach a much bigger audience. But that mission to create a globally identified brand recognized for the positive growth and development of others, the way we can do that is through our online and virtual programs. You know, so, and then... um all of a sudden we find that we're, we're moving, you know, we've created this amazing space, this, uh, but we've managed to find what we've, we've been looking for for a long time. And that is a property where we can co-locate the business and everything. So we've got the business there, the house, the whole lot. So that is, uh, that is our next project to move into that. And I think that really is going to help us go to the next level. So, so but really just doing what we're doing on a bigger scale, you know, that's, that's the mission. Yeah, it's so cool. You're changing a lot of lives. Uh, two more questions before we get into the win the day rocket round. I'm really curious your answer for this one. If you were dropped in a new country and all you have was a laptop and $100, how would you build your business all over again? Wow. I think I'd sell naked pictures, but I probably wouldn't make them. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be the mansion in no time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, oh, mate, that's a really good question. I have no idea, but. Hundred was a hundred dollars. Hundred dollars and a laptop. Yeah, new country. You could speak the language. I don't know. That's a tough one. I'm like, I can't answer that question. But maybe I should think about that just in case it happens. For sure, for sure. Well, I'm sure you'd be. I think you're more well equipped than anyone else we've had on the show to be able to do that if it happened in real life. And and final yeah. question before the rocket round. On your best day, what's an affirmation that you would write on a flashcard that you could show yourself on your worst day? I am willing to accept change as difficult as it may seem. I know it's taken me to bigger and better things. So good. You know what? That was the one affirmation when I was in Australia uh, and I knew my, something was changing. You know, everything was starting to fall apart. Pain screams the loudest when it's dying. It's the birth of something new. And I said that affirmation every day. And the more I said it, the more things started to change. And as I looked around me, I started to realize as difficult as it may seem, it was falling apart but it was the birth of something new. Mm. And really, I, I said that repeatedly. And honestly, it's true. You know, when you want to change your life, look at it. I always relate to a relationship because everyone's been in one of those. Everyone's been in a, a toxic relationship, especially people my age anyway, at some point. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, when things start to fall apart, it's because you can't fool the universe. You know what I mean? It's it's because your soul's not connected to that engagement whatever it is it starts to fall apart but you have to you have to surrender to it and it feels painful but you've just got to get through that and understand it's the birth of something new and like i just said before pain screams the loudest when it's dying you've got to allow it to scream it will try and hold on to you and claw you back in and it's easy to put that band-aid on but you've got to let it go surrender because it's the birth of something new you know an increasing theme on this show from all the amazing people who have come on it which you've just shared there it's the idea of embracing and leaning into change rather than resisting it it's such a such an important thing to do yeah 100% because you know naturally we want to uh, you know we want to we're, we're wired to avoid stress we we want to go the path of least resistance 
And really, at the you know, the, the, what what do we do at Breakpoint? We embrace short-term discomfort for long-term change, <laughs> long-term long-term gain. Love it. Well, let's now move into the win the day rocket round. Ten questions with some quick answers. You up for this one, Ollie? Yeah, man. I'm crap at doing short answers, though. <laughs> we it might take longer than the podcast itself. <laughs> Number one, what quote inspires you the most? Nothing was ever great unless at some point you doubted your ability to achieve it. Now, that's something I came up with. It might have been printed somewhere else, but I don't know. I, I came up with that. It's in my book, Battle Ready, yeah. But. Huge. Number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Uh, neither, because I don't drink coffee or wine. Number three, what's one advice? One bit of advice you would give your eighteen-year-old self uh, to look internal. The answers are internal, not external. Number four, what book do you gift the? What book do you gift the most? My book, Battle Ready, and I'm not doing that as a pitch. The fact that you know that book changed my life and um, it's changing other people's. You can see it. I mean, just go and look at the ratings. It's got on Amazon. It is a movement around the world. Battle Ready and, and Breakpoint. So go and um, go and check it out. Uh, number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Um, I don't know if it's a vulnerability, but the fact, you know, I'll, I'll reflect on that. And like the fact that my biggest downfall or my biggest obstacle, my biggest downfall was my greatest discovery. And that was when I was forced to look within. Number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? That it's a weapon. As long as you learn from it. You know, at the end of the day, we've got to keep on failing. If we're not failing, we're not challenging ourselves enough. So really got to understand, I think it's really important for, for especially younger viewers, embrace failure. You know, in this world that's being painted around us on social media, everyone faking perfection. You've got to learn that failure is a weapon. As long as we learn, we grow, we move on. Embrace failure. It's a weapon. Learn from it. So well said. Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? Uh, Bob Proctor. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? Um, I hate to say it, but my phone. Addictive little things, aren't they? <laughs> that, yeah, they're a blessing and a, and a curse, though. You know, so it, it's limiting your time with I'm I'm by no means addicted to my phone, but it is an absolute asset to my business. Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. Uh, God, I think I've done them all, mate. So. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to the moon. Yes, there we go. Just leave Earth. Let's go and get it. Space travel. Let's go. I want to see if the Earth is flat or round. <laughs> Take me with you. That'd be great fun. And final question, what's one thing you do to win the day? Uh, what I do to win, win the day is I follow my morning routine religiously. I give myself something every day. That's uh, in front of my wife, kids, anyone. It's about me being selfish, investing in myself before anyone else. And the more I can do that to create the foundation of strength, I'll bear the storm. Mm. There are a bunch of ways to connect with Ollie, and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at ollie.ollerton. Grab a copy of his amazing books on Amazon and see the incredible work he's doing with Breakpoint at break.point.co.uk. Again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. Ollie, what an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Likewise, mate. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Win The Day podcast. We want to hear your thoughts on what we covered today. So drop a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway, any questions you have, or what actions you'll be taking as a result of what was shared in this episode. 
And if you found value in the Win the Day podcast, leave a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You'll find a link to both of those in the show notes. It'll only take you a few seconds and more ratings really helps other people discover the show so they can get the mindset upgrade they need and we can bring more winners into the Win the Day movement. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.